So Psalm 136, as we're going to be seeing in a little bit, is was meant to be read antiphonally, meaning kind of a, this back and forth. Uh, so I will be reading the first line of each verse, and you will respond together with the second line, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's go now to God's holy word. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, to him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his love and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his love endures forever. but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his love to him who led his people through the wilderness, for his love forever. to him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, what a great reminder of your power, your majesty, seen in creation, seen in the redemption of your people, seen in your care for everything you have created. God, help us to see this morning your enduring, steadfast love. Help us to know you more. Help us to rest in the promises that are ours in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Since 1924, there has been a tradition at the Olympic Games that the winning individual or the winning team will take their place at the podium for the gold medal ceremony, and the flag of that country will be raised while the national anthem is played. 
So for the last hundred years, the whole world has been able to witness public declarations of a statement being made, a flag being raised and a song being played, a statement of what unifies a people. Now we can sit here, the people who are cynical like me, and we can analyze the words to these songs, right? And think about how truthful they are. And do these nations really live up to the words of those songs? We could do that for our own nation, perhaps. We could think about the actions of the governments that are represented and all the political drama that's gone on in Olympic history, right? <clears throat> those are things worth talking about. But there is something special about seeing people take pride in accomplishments that are done by people who are sent to represent them. There's something special about seeing people come to tears for something like that. This medal ceremony that we see is a lot like an affirmation of faith. Again, in this sermon series we've been going through, as I mentioned earlier, we've been looking at different elements of our worship service. You can look at those in the worship guide. Those are the different things we're covering, those bolded sections. And today we come to affirmation of faith. Now, really, if we think about this, the whole service really is one giant affirmation of faith. Our singing, our confession, our prayers, our formal affirmation of faith that we did as we recited the Nicene Creed, all of those things together are one big affirmation of what we believe. We affirm our faith in God week in and week out as we gather together for corporate worship. So today, I want us to ask, why and does it matter? Why do we do this and does it matter? Specifically, does it matter what we believe? Does it matter what we believe? I would say yes, supremely, right? It's a matter of life and death. And then does it matter what we say we believe and how we communicate it? And I would also say yes. We want to avoid hypocrisy on the one hand, like the country who sings about how great they are and they're really just a bunch of wretches, right? They're not doing the things that they say that they do. They're not living up to the glories that the song proclaims. We want to avoid that. We also want to avoid confusion on the other hand because we have not been clear about what we actually believe. Or we could look at that from the other side of the coin. We want to be consistent, right, and not hypocritical. We want to live out what we say we believe, and we want to be clear. We want to avoid confusion. So one of the things we emphasize here at Livingstone Church a lot, we talk about this in our membership class. Uh, we try to embody it in all that we do. You probably hear it up front some. We ask the question, how is Livingstone Church seeking to impact Oshkosh and the surrounding communities with the truth of the gospel, the good news of the gospel? How are we seeking to do that? And we answer that with a two-pronged approach. By being a witnessing community, a worshiping community, and a witnessing community. As a worshiping community, we are seeking to bring the world to Christ. We are inviting people to come and see. Come and see what we are doing. Come and see what we are about, what we believe. And we're going to declare here as we gather who Christ is to the watching world. So that's come and see as a worshiping community. The second is as a witnessing community, we are seeking to bring Christ to the world. We are taking what we are affirmed in and reminded of here, and we are going out into the world and we are telling 
the world what we believe. So come and see, go and tell. Worshiping community, witnessing community. And it is our belief and our burden that this worshiping and witnessing must be informed by something. Namely, the truth of who God is and what he has done for us. If you've been around here very long, you certainly heard us emphasize these things. Somebody made a joke recently. Like, like that, I say that all the time. Who God is and what he has done for us. That's, we have to be reminded of those things. So Psalm 136 is a perfect example of this. It's a great affirmation of faith that causes us to worship God for who he is And it compels us to go and tell others of his saving grace and what he has done for us. So we're going to dive into Psalm 136 shortly, but I want to add a little bit more to this argument of why we affirm our faith. Turn to the front of your worship guide. You may have read this already on your way in, but I do want to call your attention to this quote from Brian Chappell in his book, Christ-Centered Worship. He begins here. By saying, an affirmation of faith provides for the expression of the church's most basic and deeply held beliefs. Through corporate reading, recitation, or singing of such an affirmation, the contemporary church expresses its continuity with the church of the ages and its solidarity with fellow believers across the world. I love this because it highlights this element of Our faith being historic, there is this continuity, right, between the contemporary church, us today, and the church of the ages. There is not some big divide. We are confessing the same thing that the church has confessed for thousands of years, and some things we confess maybe it's been for hundreds of years, like in our tradition, the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Heidelberg Catechism and other traditions. We confess our creeds, like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed together, and then obviously, Scripture, right? We confess scripture together as our ultimate authority. Well, Chapel goes on then and lists seven things that we do when we affirm what we believe. And there are some really good overlap, I think, here between these elements of come and see and go and tell. He continues on there in the middle. By affirming what we believe, we renew our convictions attest our continuing belief in the historical truths of Christianity, indicate our support of those who have been persecuted for their faith, humble ourselves before the truths of scripture, provide testimony of our faith to our children and the watching world, declare our loyalty to God, and renew in heart and mind the truths on which we will base our daily lives and on which we have staked the eternal destiny of our souls. Now, it's hard to not look at this list of seven things. It's hard to look at this and not say that this is a big deal. So in light of the big deal-ness of this statement here, I want to address two types of people who might be here this morning. Now, first, you're, you're either here because you are a follower of Jesus and you believe that God has called you to gather together with his people to worship him, to affirm what you believe, and then to be sent out into the world to declare it. If that's you, be encouraged today. God has graciously brought you here to remind you of who he is and of what he has done for you and why it matters to the world around you. So as you see the goodness of God presented here in Psalm 136, receive it and believe it. Seek to love God with all your heart, 
soul, mind, and strength. Or you're here today because you're curious about what it is that Christians actually believe. If you didn't care at all, you wouldn't be here, right? Maybe if someone forced you to come and, and dragged you here, maybe you would come. But you're probably here. If you're not a Christian, you're probably here because you're, you're curious. You're wondering, what is this Christianity thing? And how are people still believing this about this Jesus guy who lived 2,000 years ago? What is this? Maybe you're here because you've grown weary of trying to live according to the ways of the world, of continually being disappointed and dissatisfied and unfulfilled by the promises that you've been given by the world. I invite you this morning to listen to what the God who created you and knows everything about you has to say about who he is and what he has done to save you from your sin. Don't stand on the sidelines as a spectator. Join us in worshiping our great God. Believe and receive the truths from Psalm 136. Turn from your sins today and trust in Jesus Christ, who, as you read earlier in Acts 4, is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. So let's look at Psalm 136 now. It is worth noting a couple things about this psalm. The first that is in Jewish tradition, this is called the Great Hallel Psalm, the Great Psalm of Praise. So we see that repetition of giving thanks to God for his steadfast love endures forever. This was traditionally called the Great Psalm of Praise. And then as we saw, it's organized antiphonally. There is this call and response. Again, this is a great example of an affirmation of faith. So as we consider how Psalm 136 helps us to affirm our faith, we're going to see five reasons why we should praise our God. If you're taking notes, I'll be mentioning these as we go along. Five reasons why we should praise our God. So let's look at the first three verses, which really set the tone and show us first that we should praise God for who he is. We should praise God for who he is. Now, these first two words are really meant to grab our attention. This is a command. It's repeated multiple times here. Give thanks. We could translate this as a single word with a few other words. We could say praise or confess or acknowledge. The heart behind this is recognizing and verbally declaring something to be true about God. This first verse calls us to recognize and declare a very important truth. The Lord is good. This is speaking of his character. It's not just what he does, but it's who he is. He is good. His nature, his very essence is goodness. This word is used in contrast to evil. So it speaks of God's perfection and his beauty. This word is also used in the Bible to describe things that are pleasing and desirable. God is desirable. We should desire him because he is good. This is not like an option on a satisfaction survey at your favorite restaurant, right? You go sit down and they give you the survey. If you fill this out, you know, $5 off and it's like, okay, uh, you know, bad, right? Like the service of the food is bad, average, good. 
Very good. This here is not any of those. It is supremely good, unmatched. There are no other options. And we see that by the psalmist's threefold use of God's name here. He begins in verse one with the name, the Lord. And you see that L-O-R-D, all caps, that is Yahweh. That is God's divine name, his covenant name. Speaks of his nearness to his people, his special care for his people. Then verse two, give thanks to the God of gods. This word God that we have here in English is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the generic word that is, can be translated. The Hebrew word Elohim can also be translated lowercase g, God. So here it would be give thanks to the Elohim of Elohims, right? The God of gods. That's the distinction that the psalmist makes here, that God is the God of gods. He's not saying here the God of Israel is one choice among many gods. So just take your pick. This is not like taking your kid to the candy aisle and saying, go ahead and pick your favorite one. There's all these choices. It's saying our God reigns above all other so-called gods. We saw that in Deuteronomy 4 that we read earlier. I'll turn back one psalm to Psalm 135, specifically verse 5. If you've got the pew Bible, you have to turn back a page. Psalm 135, verse 5 says, For I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is great, and that our Lord, L-O-R-D, not all caps, is above all gods. And this is an acknowledgement that the nations worship their own gods, but Yahweh is Lord. Now, this second Lord, not all caps, is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master or supreme authority. Kalen mentioned this last week when we looked at Psalm 86. We see that in verse 3 here of Psalm 136. The Lord of lords. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Now, look also back at Psalm 135, verses 15 through 17, to see how the lowercase g, gods of the nations, are described. It says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. These so-called gods are blind and deaf and mute. They're no gods at all. Then look at this strong warning in verse 18. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is like taking the kid to the candy aisle and there's a big warning label from the dentist. that says, all of these things are going to rot your teeth. Don't choose any of them. And then there's a big arrow pointing to the fresh fruit aisle saying, go there, right? Go choose something that is healthy. Now, I'm not saying that God is like fresh fruit. Don't get me wrong here. But he is superior to all of the idols that we chase. And he is supremely satisfying. There is no teeth rot. There is no belly ache when we choose him. The psalmist then in Psalm 135 follows that warning by this reminder to God's people to bless and to praise his name which then flows right into Psalm 136. 
which begins with this power-packed punch in these first three verses that call us to affirm our faith in our good and sovereign God. In doing so, we do several of the things from Brian Chappell's list on the worship guide cover. We humble ourselves before the truths of scripture. We provide testimony of our faith to our children and the watching world. We declare our loyalty to God. And we renew in heart and mind the truths on which we will base our daily lives and on which we have staked the eternal destiny of our souls. This last one, our daily lives and the eternal destiny of our souls, is captured in the 26 times repeated response, for his steadfast love endures forever. We declare that God's steadfast love for his people is both enough to carry us through the daily grind of life in this broken world and to bring us into the glorious reality of eternal life in the next. But do we believe it? When the grind, when the day-to-day grind of life in this world feels unbearable, when the pressure to give in to the world or to our own sinful desires feels insurmountable, when it feels like the difficulty of following Jesus is too great, maybe you found yourself asking God, why did you even save me, God, if this is what comes with it? Hatred of the world, battling my own sinful flesh, outward attacks from the enemy. God never promised us, friends, that it was going to be easy. But he did, and he does promise that in the midst of all these things, that he is good. That his steadfast love endures forever. Affirming this and reminding ourselves and others of who God is as we read it and recite it and sing it and pray it. This is what God calls us to do. The next thing we see is that we should praise God for what he has done. The psalmist begins fittingly at the beginning with creation in verses 4 through 9. Now notice how in many of the following verses, it begins with the words, to him. Verses 4 through 7, verse 10, verse 13, verses 16 and 17. Although the words aren't recorded here, the command we saw at the beginning, give thanks, is implied. So verse 4 would read, give thanks to him who alone does great wonders which really probably serves as a bit of a summary statement for the rest of this psalm. God's great wonders are seen in creation and redemption, two themes that we see in the rest of this psalm. Now, this word here for wonders is often translated as wondrous works or wondrous deeds. David uses it in Psalm 139 to describe how God knits us together in our mother's womb when he declares, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 136 speaks of the power and the wonder of the one who, by understanding, made the heavens and spread out the earth above the waters and made the great lights, echoing the first five verses of Genesis 1, and affirming that the God we praise is the one responsible for creating all that we see. Now, in a world today where most people just assume a naturalistic or evolutionary explanation for how things came to be, 
We are not radical and revolutionary if we claim that God created the heavens and the earth. People might think that, that we're the crazy ones, that we're radical and revolutionary. But this is what God's people have declared for ages. We are simply confessing, along with believers throughout the centuries, as we did earlier earlier in the Nicene Creed, that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And these aren't just some cold, hard facts. Because the response, again, for his steadfast love endures forever, follows each one of these claims. The heaven and the earth, the sun and the moon and the stars were created by God because he loves us. Do we think about that when we're discussing creation and evolution with someone? Are we just trying to get all into the facts, right? About like fossils and the flood and all that. I mean, great stuff, right? But are we thinking about the reality that creation declares God's power and glory and that it's a continual reminder of his great love for us? Let us not miss that, both in our own personal meditations and in our evangelistic efforts. So we continue then to see how we should praise God for what he has done by seeing his wondrous work of redemption. So we should praise God for his wondrous work of redemption. We see that in verses 10 through 16. And here the psalmist points back to the great salvation that God worked for his people in the Exodus when he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. But it wasn't just enough for Pharaoh to let the people go. The people being let go was just the beginning of what was about to take place. Remember, God led them through the wilderness to the Red Sea, but they were trapped. As they're trapped, waiting for their imminent death, they complained to Moses, saying they were better off as slaves in Egypt than being killed here in this wilderness. Moses then reminds them that they will see the salvation of the Lord. He said, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Then God divided the Red Sea and overthrew the superpowered army of Egypt with their chariots and their horsemen. And the reminder for God's people throughout history is that we worship a God who has not only delivered us from slavery to sin and death and the devil, but he continues to lead us through our pilgrimage in this wilderness toward the promised land. Do you remember God's word? God's words through Moses to Pharaoh. Let my people go that they may, what? Worship me. Listen to how Michael Goheen describes this in his book, Light to the Nations. He says, the purpose of redemption is to create a worshiping people. God's continuing presence with the people of Israel called them to the ongoing worship of their divine king. Worship is central to the identity of God's people. The people of God celebrate God's presence among them as a worshiping community. Brothers and sisters, this is true for us today as a church. Worship is central to our identity as we celebrate God's presence among us as a worshiping community that has been redeemed by his mighty hand. Now, our redemption in Christ is not a literal deliverance from slavery in a foreign land, but it is a deliverance from bondage to sin and death to a slave master that is more ruthless than any earthly king could ever be. 
And it's not a crossing of a sea of great waters, but it is a crossing from death to life. That is what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross for our redemption. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop and Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, it says that he, they spoke of his departure. Literally, that word is exodus. Jesus was speaking of his exodus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the promised deliverer who leads us safely through the sea on dry ground into the promised land. And for the children of Israel, Psalm 136 recounted a specific historical deliverance from a foreign nation. For us today, we recount Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross for all those who will call upon him from every tribe and language and people and nation. And just like the Israelites in the Exodus, we don't just look back to the cross and to our past deliverance from bondage to sin and death and the devil, but we also look forward to God's ongoing protection and provision. Next thing we see here is we are to praise him for his ongoing protection and provision. This is pictured in Psalm 136, verses 17 through 22, with the conquest of the land of Canaan. Just as the exodus from Egypt is spiritual and not physical for the church, so is this picture of the conquest of and the settling in the promised land. The author of Hebrews makes that clear in chapter 11 when he speaks of Abraham and the patriarchs who died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth who desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If you are in Christ today, this world is not your home. We recited this glorious statement together in the conclusion of the Nicene Creed. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. How amazing that it ends with those words. That's why I chose those prayers for our pastoral prayer. Looking to the reality of heaven. Confessing that we long for something more. That we were created for something more. The world to come is the better country. Let us as strangers and exiles here desire that country. And we admit in the meantime that waiting is hard, isn't it? Delaying gratification, especially in our age of instant gratification, delaying gratification can be agonizing. Waiting and longing for something that we may not fully get until death is a tall order. But we wait in joyful hope, confessing and affirming with the psalmist what he confesses in this summary statement in these last four verses, which remind us that we should praise God for his saving and sustaining grace. We should praise God for his saving and sustaining grace. Verses 23 and 24 speak of God remembering them in their lowest state and rescuing them from their foes. Now, certainly here, this refers to the immediate context that we just saw about the exodus out of Egypt and the conquering of the land of Canaan. We've already seen the spiritual realities of these events for us as Christians. But there is a broader appeal here. As if the psalmist 
is reminding his original audience that the steadfast love of the Lord is experienced by all people, whether they recognize it or not. Verse 25 says, he gives food to all flesh. This is what we call common grace. As Jesus explained when he taught his disciples to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them, saying he makes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He makes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, he gives food to all flesh. Now, this is much harder to recognize in our highly automated age. We don't often think about this when we're grabbing fruits and veggies at the grocery store. We don't think about the reality of the sun rising on the good and the evil and the rain falling on the just and the unjust so that we might have the food that we have to eat. But that is the reality. And this might seem trivial, but it is a great reason to give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever as we are commanded in this final verse, mirroring that great introductory section begins give thanks to the Lord ends give thanks to the God of heaven and repeated 26 times for his steadfast love endures forever. There's a lot to consider in this song. Who is God? What has he done for us? What does he continue to do for us? How should we respond both individually and corporately as a community of faith? What does it look like to be a worshiping people and a witnessing people? Again, maybe you're here today and you are not yet a Christian. How are you going to respond to God's call to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ? We're going to respond in a moment by singing a great song called, Is He Worthy? And this song, like Psalm 136, is an antiphonal song. We're going to be asked some questions by someone on the music team, and we are going to respond, thereby affirming our faith together. And my challenge to us as we sing is don't just sing these words half-heartedly. Don't just repeat the phrase, we do, and it is, and he does, because that's what you're supposed to do, and because everyone around you is doing it. Sing it because you believe it. Sing it because it's true. And sing it because he is worthy. Let us pray. Father, we confess that our hearts can be so cold and numb to you, to the truth of your word. God, to your great love for us that has been poured out in Christ. We can be so blinded. God, we can become like the idols that we make. Even if we're not making them with our hands, we're certainly creating them in the idol factory of our hearts. We so quickly become blind to your goodness to your mercy, to your love. Father, forgive us. Cause us to be a people who remind ourselves and remind others 
by going to your word, by going to our confessions, by worshiping together, reminding ourselves and others of who you are and what you've done for us, that we would look to our Savior, that we would love him more because he is worthy. We thank you, God, for your faith love that endures forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.